Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. This week on BespokeCast, we're joined by Meb Faber. Meb is one of the most innovative and widely followed investors out there. He's published three books, 10 white papers, and writes regularly for his blog at mebfaber.com. As you'll hear, His company, Cambria Investments, is an innovative investment manager for individuals and institutions, and he's also extremely active on Twitter, where you can follow him, at Meb Faber. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today on BespokeCast, we are lucky enough to have with us Cambria Investments' uh, Meb Faber. Uh, He is a manager of investments there. He's the CEO of one of the most interesting asset managers, I think, out there today available to individual investors. And he's also someone that uh, thinks very deeply about and writes very broadly on financial markets in general. So we're thrilled to have him on here today, and we'd love to start the conversation. Meb, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. And you're joining us from California. You live in, out in Manhattan Beach, is that correct? Yeah, rainy LA today. We're uh, <clears throat> we've been getting quite the quite the storm the last few weeks. It's great though. That means snow in the mountains, which uh, is music to my ears. Do you ski or do you board? I do. Uh, I do both. Much better skier, but uh, but uh, love. It's been kind of my grew up mostly in Colorado, a little North Carolina, but been my life's passion. I love to ski, so it's uh, I've been getting lots of texts and emails about how great the snow is everywhere. Mammoth has something like 20 feet in the last two weeks, so uh, I'm I'm getting my skis waxed up. I'm ready. That's awesome. I grew up skiing myself. Uh, I grew up in Western Canada, so like 25 minute drive from a ski hill. So uh, I can I hadn't gone to the hill in years, and I remember going up to the hill last winter with my girlfriend, and you know being a little bit nervous. But then you get the planks under your feet, and the hill starts sliding beneath you, and it's just like riding a bike. It's like the best thing in the world to just slide on down. I I, I wish I could ski get out to the hill more often. You're you're lucky that you're able to do it. <laughs> Eastern British Columbia is sort of my on my next bucket list, the kind of Revelstoke, Kicking Horse, uh, Red Mountain area. So yep. that's that's probably number one on my on my to do list. Yeah, well, if you get a chance, slide into Whitewater um, or maybe do some cat skiing at Baldface. Those are the two places for skiing around my hometown. I highly recommend the Champagne Powder out there. Um, other interesting thing, you said you had lived in North Carolina. Whereabouts did you did you spend time there when you were younger? Your Canadian accent was sneaking out there. Uh, plus, by the way, it's a great time to be going skiing in Canada with the, the U.S. dollar. Exactly. Uh, I, I grew up partially in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Well, you know I now live in Winston-Salem, yeah? Yeah, it's a great spot. I could give you – we could talk all sorts about uh, lots of great wing restaurants and everything else uh, to do to do in Winston. Yeah, it's great. I moved here last summer and it's fantastic. So I uh, spent time in North Carolina and in Colorado growing up. You now live in California. Where did you do undergrad? I meant to say if you ever drive down Roslyn Road, you can you can wave at my old house. Uh, I, did, <laughs> I, I did undergrad at the University of Virginia, uh, studied biology and engineering. Uh, awesome. And you uh, went straight from undergrad into the financial sector. Is that correct? Sort of, you know, I, I took um, I took a year off. So this was in 2000, and um, a pretty interesting time in both biotech and genomics and the markets. And so as a as a biotech undergrad, my plan was to go back for a PhD. Um, but having having spoken to my brother, who took about a decade to do his, he says, you know, why don't you take a year off, make some money, you know, work in the real world, and then go back because it could easily take you know five six years for a life science PhD. So I kind of did in the middle. Um, I actually took a job as a biotech equity analyst for a mutual fund in D.C. and then went to grad school at night at John Hopkins. And that one year off um, from grad school, uh, from full-time grad school, became two and then became three and kind of just sort of gravitating away from 
the biotech world and more and more towards the finance and quant world and you know now what what once looked like my career path is now my probably hobby and vice versa so you spent time as a biotech analyst uh you did some grad school and now you're running your own company and very much sort of away from the more institutional side of things, you know, big banks or other people's uh, firms, essentially. How did you sort of transition from um, being part of that machine and into, you know, building your own machine? Well, um, that's an interesting question because there's, you know, it seems like a lot of people when you, when you talk to them have a very defined, specific you know, element to win, to when this all came together. But, you know, for, for me at least life has been a series of kind of happy accidents and certainly starting a firm, you know, was, was one of those where I had moved to Los Angeles, uh, where we are in Manhattan beach and El Segundo and had met my current partner and we started it, but with, with certainly, um, no assurance of, what we wanted to be when we grew up and kind of the direction we were going to go. And it looks probably a lot different now than the way we envisioned it almost 10 years ago. But yeah, I mean, it just kind of, we started it without probably knowing any better and fast forward and it, uh, it's, you know, kind of become a, a happy little, little success. And somewhere in there, um, there's an, there's another connection you have with uh, our firm, uh, you and Brad Liff, who are who's our managing director in business and product development. Uh, you guys shared an apartment at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That was my first place in L.A. I found it essentially off of Craigslist and um, could probably tell you lots of stories uh, about living with Bradley. Um, we had a great time together. He was only there for a little bit before uh, he ended up moving out, but... Um, but yeah, we, uh, in Hermosa beach, we shared a a little three bedroom about a block from the beach with a great roof deck and a big, huge American bulldog. But it was, uh, certainly a really interesting time in the markets. That was right around pre the big global financial crisis. It's really, uh, you know, kind of an aside here. It's really fascinating to me how, while our business, you know, our day to day involves so much numbers, involves you know, sort of cold or dispassionate views on asset prices, on analysis of all kinds. In so many ways, it really is a human business too. Like that kind of connection, like that that you see people have, and and that's relatively small in the scope of things. But um, you know, it's amazing how human this business can be at times. Yeah, you know, and, there, and there's not only that part, but you look at the, there's a great Anzwath Damodaran book that just came out, and I'm blanking on the title of it, but it's basically about storytelling and investing, and I think that's a lot of uh, something that particularly a lot of quants or mathematic, uh, you know, um, bent guys like our shop, you know, fail to appreciate a lot, but but that's how people learn and convey information. Certainly, is that storytelling and human aspect and and it's pretty easy to get caught up in the numbers, but there's a lot more depth and uh, conversation you can have when it's when it's kind of wrapped in that human human storytelling uh, prism. So you do uh, a fair bit of storytelling, I would say. I mean, not in terms of not to say that you don't have large amounts of quantitative analysis, but you put out a lot of stuff, um, a lot of information in. Um, word form. I mean, you've written three books. You have uh, what a, about a dozen white papers. Uh, you speak regularly um, ar- around the country. You have a podcast. Um, you have an active Twitter presence as well. Um, did that all sort of just kind of evolve organically, or was there something you sort of focused on and that led to other things? How did this all sort of come together? Uh, you know, going back to the kind of series of happy accidents, is that you know, back in 2007, one of the reasons I started blogging was that there was a couple areas of investing in finance that there wasn't really that much information I could, I could find and wanted to be able to interact with a broader community and the internet certainly, you know, for, for better or worse, gives you that, uh, soapbox or megaphone. And, you know, if you write something brilliant, that's wonderful because you'll reach a big audience. If you write something idiotic, the same thing occurs. And so um, we certainly seen that over and over, you know, with the internet. And so I started actually blogging because there was two topics that I was interested in that I couldn't find any published material on, certainly in the academic space or in the published space. And and one was 
uh, kind of tracking the third, uh, tracking hedge funds through their public filings, government filings. So 13F in particular, uh, but as well as insider, you know, there'd been a fair amount written about insiders, but not as much about hedge funds. And the second was trading foreign listed hedge funds in Europe, uh, which is something that's kind of, you know, you don't see really any still talk about it in the U S but for various reasons, but I started writing the blog because of that. And then as a similar parallel track had started writing an academic paper. And the funny thing about my first academic paper was that it was meant to avoid a certification test. So they had given two options, one of which was to take the level three test and the, and the other was to write an essay. And we chose, I chose because I really, really, really didn't want to take the test to, to write a white paper. And so it kind of grew from there. The white paper became very popular and the, and the blog kind of started, um, you know, being a quant in many ways is a very solitary uh, endeavor. And so being able to reach out to people all around the world has certainly benefited us exponentially more than, than kind of the work that we've put into it. Uh, was that CFA level three? It was the CMT, which is the technical analysis uh, kind of cousin of the fundamental CFA. So uh, your your reputation is definitely much more on the sort of quantitative hard data side, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily associate so much with technical analysis, even though in practice, I, I think there is a lot of overlap. Um, how does sort of that technical side approach inform some of the stuff that you do around uh, something like valuation, um, looking at uh, quantitative value strategies? Is, is there a is there a cross pollination there? So if you look at either technical, which typically historically is meant price-based, or fundamental, which is something more traditional like price-to-earnings ratios for analysis, the, the problem is, in my mind, it hasn't ever been the technical versus fundamental. It's been subjective versus objective. And so you'll have people that apply technical or fundamental analysis in a very subjective way. And to me, historically, that has been very suboptimal and not necessarily repeatable. But if you take a objective or rules-based approach to either, um, then I think that, that that's an approach that makes a lot more sense to me. And I don't rule out either camp. You know, I, th I think certainly there's been reams of academic research that support both. You know, there, there are theories that go back well over 100 years. Charles Dow was writing about Dow theory and trend following well over 100 years ago. Ben Graham was writing about value investing on the fundamental side. So it's really nothing new. Um, but there has been you know, an enormous amount of research that shows that, that both approaches are, can be valid and have continued to work in the, in the many decades since. And you have a variety of products um, in terms of the ETFs at Cambria um, that, that use either a, a quantitative version of that price-based uh, signal or that um, fundamental-based signal, correct? Yep. We have uh, eight ETFs currently trading and another, oh boy, about nine filed behind it. Oh, wow. So you guys have been busy. Mm -hmm. Of the nine that are filed, are you able to talk about those? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're the, the prospectuses are public, so I can talk generally. Uh, you know, We try to shy away a little bit about from talking about our funds too much because we don't like to be too... Uh, salesy, but happy to talk about the research ideas behind any of them and then the con con concepts that I think uh, could certainly apply to anyone. Yeah, let's do that. You've got eight um, coming in. So just to run through them quickly, you've got the shareholder yield ETF, the foreign shareholder yield ETF, global value ETF, global momentum ETF, global asset allocation, emerging shareholder yield, value momentum ETF, and then the sovereign bond ETF. I guess two of those, the global momentum, or sorry, the global asset allocation and the sovereign bond are not necessarily pure equity. In fact, the sovereign bond not not equity at all. Are, is that going to be a theme in some of the upcoming ETFs you guys are going to roll out that it's going to move sort of away uh, from the pure equity ETF? Well, if you take a step back and say, you know, what's the what's our goal? What's the kind of whole point of us launching these funds? And you say, look, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, there's a, thousands of funds out there with with, you know, many hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars now, what is the point of, you know, a, another shop launching more funds? And, and for us, the goal is kind of three or four things. One, it's, we think it's something that, that doesn't exist. 
So you'll hear our friends at Vanguard, and we love that shop, often say, you know, all the ETFs that have been launched have been launched, and you don't really need to be launching anymore. And, and we smile because we disagree. Um, two is that it has to be something we want to put our own money into. So I invest 100% of my public net worth into these uh, securities, you know, because we believe in them. And lastly, it's a little more challenging, is it? And, and along those lines, by the way, to, meaning that has to be something we believe in. It has to be something that historic. There's a, a fair amount of historical research that would show it's either superior to what's out there or cheaper. And lastly, and the hardest one, of course, is uh, is it a is it a fund or a concept that people actually want? And so the, those filters right there eliminate the vast majority of funds that we would consider. You know, and so many of these shops out there just throw as much against the wall to see what sticks because, you know, they see the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for this ETF space that has been very successful. But in reality, um, you know, most of the landscape has been covered, but we think there's plenty of good ideas that, that are superior or that we think that people uh, would like access to that, that don't exist yet. So what are some of those ideas that you're going to roll out um, the, the nine ETFs you had mentioned that aren't yet uh, trading, but are in the works? So if you think about, for example, um, the ETF space, why it's been so popular, it's because the cost of the funds are on average roughly half the cost of traditional mutual funds. So there's a big price benefit. And second, there's a massive tax benefit. So ETFs are much structurally much more tax efficient than mutual funds are. And then lastly, they have a lot of um, they don't hold all the baggage that mutual funds do over the years. You know, mutual fund structure has historically been, uh, been one where it's built to be sold. So there's 12B1 fees, there's front-end loads, there's back-end loads, there's platform fees. It's just a very expensive, non-shareholder-friendly structure. And the ETF is different. So that having been said, a lot of the strategies we have go in a couple groups. And so first, again, is is things we think are much better than what's out there. Um, and so as an example, we have what we call this uh, investable benchmark series. And, and our allocation fund was the first in this series where we said, you know what, you know, as our thesis that a lot of these buy and hold allocations, you know, investors, all the research we've shown in our global asset allocation book is that there's not a whole lot of benefit between the various allocations rounding, you know, rounding the different um how much you have in stocks versus bonds or whatnot. So what you really should focus on is paying as little as possible. So our asset allocation fund is actually the only ETF, still to my knowledge, that has a 0% permanent management fee. And so all in, the cost of that fund is about 25 basis points. And so people can get a beautiful allocation to own over 20,000 securities around the world. Uh, and, and it reflects kind of this global market portfolio with tilts towards value and momentum. So right there with one fund, they can get access to the entire world global market portfolio. So in the next filing, we have a few other variants of that. So for someone who wants something like that, but is more aggressive, uh, we have an endowment style fund, for example. For people that want one that's much higher fixed income exposure, uh, what, what a lot of people would label a risk parity fund, you know, we have some strategies there that are available. And so that, that's kind of one category. And then, you know, we have some that are much more niche, you know, such as, currency strategies fund, uh, as well as a managed future style. And so both of those are areas that traditionally have existed in the two and 20 hedge fund world. And you had kind of this commoditization of a lot of these hedge fund like strategies where people used to pay really exorbitant fees that are now being kind of transformed into rules based what we would call alternative beta or uh, ETF based portfolios that you can now access for maybe 60 70 basis points instead of two and 20 um, performance, uh, two and 20 uh, uh, fees. So one of the things that always comes up, I think, when people hear the words um, sort of alternative beta or, you know, trying to replicate hedge fund strategies in a public instrument, whether it's an ETF or a mutual fund or something like that, is the question of leverage um, and what that can mean in terms of replicating the strategy in question. So hedge funds obviously have extremely broad latitude in terms of the amount of leverage they apply and the amount of leverage they run um, from day to day. Uh, are any of these funds leveraged or are they using leveraged instruments in a way that that um, that could create that similar sort of discretionary leverage or is it um, is, is it a more simplistic unlevered sort of approach um, to that to that problem? 
Yeah, I mean, some some can use it. Uh, we don't necessarily believe that a great deal of leverage is is necessarily beneficial or necessary for most of the strategies we target. The, the one exception may be the exposure of the currency strategies fund, uh, because unlevered, it's a very low volatility sort of investment. Um, so some do, some don't, but it's it kind of is very very dependent on the fund. Really interesting. Um, with regards to the ETF's performance so far, um, some some of the ETFs that that you've rolled out have really sound you know approaches, like the sort of things that are validated by lots of academic research, by um, lots of sort of intuitive observation in the market. I mean, you know, momentum is a perfect example. Stuff that's gone up tends to keep going up. So it, it stands to reason that there should be at least a modicum of outperformance amongst, um, you know, some of these some of these approaches you've taken. Um, for some of the funds that hasn't really developed yet, uh, do you, some of your funds that hasn't really developed yet, do you think that's coming and that it's sort of too soon to tell? Or do you think there's something else going on um, that's sort of presenting preventing the realization of what should be, you know, outperformance over time? Right. I think if we didn't think it was coming, we certainly wouldn't have launched them or would close them down. Um, you know, almost any investment strategy, asset class or approach, um, you know, goes through periods of outperformance and underperformance. You know, we look at Buffett or value investing has really underperformed for about the last almost the last decade now and has done very poorly since the global financial crisis. But um, something like a Buffett style strategy, which is a very simple value and quality has absolutely destroyed, uh, a broad based market cap portfolio, um, for as long as, as long as Buffett's been, um, investing. So, I mean, look, you know, anytime you look at our funds, we have some funds, our oldest fund, uh, that's passed a three year track record is a four star rated fund is kind of, um, which means it's, it's beating the vast majority of its, its peers as well as, Benchmarks, and then of course you have funds that have been out for less than a year, and it's kind of a coin toss. I mean, in general, most of the strategies that we manage, if you look at even a value, uh, a value-based strategy going back, say, 60 years, it only outperforms slightly above half the time. It's around 60% of any given calendar year. Um, so, it, you know, many types of strategies. The biggest challenge for most investors is not chasing performance, and so uh, you have it at. A scenario, for example, is a good one is that the U.S. stock market versus foreign stocks is roughly a uh, coin flip in any given year. It, it, the U.S. stocks outperform foreign about 50% of the time and vice versa. And however, the U.S. has outperformed foreign stocks since 2009 as the number one performing stock market in the world. And that is an extreme, very extreme example. And what that has caused is obviously a distortion in value. So the U.S. stock market is now one of the most expensive stock markets in the world. It's not terrible. It's not like it was in the 90s, but we do expect low single-digit returns at this point going forward for the U.S. stock market. But the good news is most of the foreign markets around the world uh, are cheap um, all the way down to being really cheap. And so, you know, just to show you that I'm not talking my book, I mean, our largest fund is a U.S. stock portfolio, shareholder yield sort of strategy that has beaten almost you know all the dividend funds in existence and and we think is still much cheaper than the dividend funds but if you had to ask me meb where is the most opportunity in the world i would not say it's in domestic equities i would say it's it's absolutely more in foreign and, and emerging markets so one of the things you just mentioned in that in that little answer there i guess would would be the fact that certain markets in around the world are cheaper relative to each other, that, that you can ascribe um, a, a given valuation ratio to every stock market in the world or all the ones that matter and compare them. And that quantitative signal will uh, help you understand outperformance or understand forward relative performance. Do you guys do anything to adjust for some of the sort of complicated long-term factors that go into uh, driving stock market performance around the world? For instance, uh, the United States stock market in terms of its sector weightings looks nothing like Australia. Uh, Australia is, I think, almost 50% banks. It's got huge mining exposure relative to the United States. Um, so the sector valuations aren't necessarily going to look the same as a United States stock market that tilts much more towards consumer-oriented stocks um, or industrial stocks. Uh, do you guys do anything to handicap the sort of um, differences between countries um, in that respect over time? 
To me, that's the whole point is that you want to go where value is cheapest. And so if you take a step back and say, let's look at a world composition, and this is a huge mistake almost every investor makes, is most investors in the U.S. have about, of their equity allocation, about 70% invested in the U.S. And um, U.S. as a percentage of world market cap is about half. And so if you were a Vanguard, diehard indexer, your starting point for investing in foreign stocks should be 50%. And no U.S. investor does. They only put about 30%. And the reason being is called a home country bias. In most countries around the world, Italians put most of their money into Italian stocks. Most Asian countries do the same thing. And we found it in every country around the world where people put way too much in their own country relative to how much they should according to the global market cap. And so that, to me, is the starting point. And then if you say, let's start to use valuation to move away from that, Every single country has had its moment in the sun as well as its, you know, times of huge geopolitical and economic turmoil. So U.S. is, we calculate, the second most expensive country in the world right now, but it's not always the case. And so we, we use, for example, one valuation metric we use, and we use a number of them, is a long-term uh, price-to-earnings ratio, what many people call the Schiller price-to-earnings ratio. So it's 10-year average of, of earnings. Uh, you know, in the U.S., that's around, it's been around 17 historically. And but it's been as low as five and it's been as high as is the mid 40s and late 90s. And so right now it's around 27. So it's on the high side. But kind of what you mentioned as far as sector compensation, to me, that's the whole point is if you're going to move away from the market cap index and go anywhere, then you should drop your home country bias and go to wherever uh, the investments are cheapest. And so if that means you're going to be investing in Brazil and Russia, you know, we did an article at the beginning of last year that said Russia is the cheapest stock market in the world, um, kind of unquestionably, and, and Russia was down there too. And granted, 2016 was a, a wonderful time for using global valuations. Those markets had really phenomenal years, I think up around 50%. Um, but to me, that's really the whole point. If you start to sector constrain yourself and say, no, actually, we want to reflect the global market portfolio then at my point, you shouldn't move away at all from the global market portfolio and you should just allocate to that and be done with it. Um, but to have outperformance, by definition, you have to be very different. And so that means concentration and a very active deviation from what the global market portfolio is. So in this case, you know, we run a fund that does this um, that invests in the 10 cheapest stock markets around the world. Uh, but it's going to look very, very, very different from what um, most of the uh, uh, the broad indexes represent. So I guess kind of implicit in that answer is the idea that you know all businesses will trend towards the same valuation over time, right? Because I mean, historically utilities have carried a relatively modest valuation. Right now, interest rates are very low, so this is a bad example in contemporary terms. But uh, not going to get a lot of earnings growth beyond what they're what they're going to um, get. Um, in terms of being allowed to hike rates um, or economic growth at large. So you don't want to pay a huge multiple for utilities. Historically speaking, again, this is skewed because interest rates are low. So those should be worth more right now anyways, but leaving that aside. Um, so if you had a market entirely composed of utilities and then you compared it to a market you know, this is obviously hypothetical, no stock market in the world looks actually like this, but compared it to a market that was entirely composed of tech stocks uh, who, you know, had uh, growth prospects and had um, a lot, you know, expectations of earnings growth much higher than utilities and for good reason, um, your argument would be that that doesn't matter. That, that, that over time, those two valuations should trend to the same point. I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that sort of seems to be the implicit argument that, that I just heard. Is that, is that correct or is that? Look, there's, a, there's a couple of things that um, we should talk about. So first is valuation is a very blunt tool. And the, the whole point of using valuation is, is not just that you're getting the cheapest bucket, which you are. And historically, that's worked great. It's also that you're avoiding the most expensive and really that only matters when there's extremes in either or both. But but in general, that's that's what you're doing. And a lot of people focus on the cheap, but they kind of ignore the effects of, of avoiding the most expensive as well. And let me give you an example about the problem of comparing a sector or a country to its historical average. And, and it sounds, something, sounds like something that's reasonable uh, in, in general, but here's a problem. So let's say you take Japan, for example. Second biggest economy in the world. I think it's now third after China, but for 
for a long time has, has been the second biggest economy in the world. So it's not some backwater. In the 1980s, it reached a 10-year P.E. ratio of almost 100. And if everyone remembers, Japan was going to take over the world. They had better car production. They had best electronics. Management Books were written about their management. Everything, yada, yada. Well, if you had simply said, and, and then Japan had horrible stock returns for the next two decades that followed, largely because it took that long to work off the biggest bubble we've ever seen. So that bubble was double the size of the U.S. bubble in the late 90s. And the problem is you said, well, look, you know, we should look at Japan's average P-E ratio over time, same as you would look at your average P-E ratio of utilities or energy or buggy, buggy whip operators. Well, the problem is Japan's average P-E ratio over since the 1970s is probably about 50. So you would have simply just been buying the entire way down when you thought it was getting cheap relative to its historical valuations because it had a quote historical higher growth rate but really all that was was a massive massive bubble and so the flip side happens as well as is people in going back to the storytelling and behavioral aspect people can think of a thousand reasons why not to invest in the cheap stuff um, when it's really cheap so right now that's eastern europe still brazil and russia uh, a lot of countries that are really struggling and they can always think of a thousand reasons to invest in the countries that are expensive. You know, the U.S. is of the world that are hitting new highs uh, and that are getting more and more expensive. But historically, that's been a very poor way to invest. You know, the best way to invest is to actually kind of run to where things are, look worst, where trailing GDP is the worst, trailing currency returns are the worst, trailing stock market and drawdowns are the worst um, has been a much better. And so, um, you know, there's actually Schiller actually put out a great paper on CAPE ratios for sectors like utilities uh, going back all the way to the 1920s. And what we found historically is that, of course, value, and it doesn't matter if you use P ratio, you could use dividend yield. And there are some structural differences. Like you mentioned, some sectors and countries have a higher structural predisposition to dividends, like Australia. Um, and so, but even then, if you use dividends, it works just fine too. So we actually don't use just PE. We use a 10-year value composite. Uh, which gives you an average across about four or five different variables so that you're not relying on just one if it may be an outlier. Uh, and in particular for some of the very small emerging countries, and even if you get into frontier, that matters because the, the indices are comprised of you know a, a smaller amount of stocks versus something like the U.S. or Japan that has thousands. I'm trying to think of a way to sort of distill that great answer into something um, sort of pithy and it's hard to do, which I think speaks to the challenge of operating in a complex world. I mean, this stuff, this stuff really is hard and in 140 characters at a time or, you know, 30 seconds on a TV hit or whatever the case may be, it's, it's hard to communicate big, complicated and nuanced ideas. Um, in a, in, a, in a pithy way. Let me interject real quick is that, and here's the funny thing about value that I think a lot of people get wrong, is value is a very, very slow moving glacier. And so it may look like, hey, Brazil and Russia were up 50% last year, or XYZ country is down 30, 50, 80%. But at least historically speaking, if you use a value strategy, a deep value strategy like this, where you're looking at say 10 year PE ratios, the most, the absolute highest frequency you want to update that portfolio is once a year. If you update it quarterly or monthly, you destroy performance because you're not allowing or giving the countries or sectors time to, to breathe and time to kind of revert. You could even update that portfolio once every two years and it wouldn't matter. Um, because what happens, let's say you have Russia right now that's trading at a PE ratio of five, that stock market needs to double or triple before it comes out of the cheap bucket. Right. And so the U.S. stock market needs to get cut in half before it would even be, be remotely considered getting into the cheap bucket. So a lot of these, you know, people that are, you know, that, like you mentioned, the TV and Twitter and everything else operates on such a short time horizon. This applies to everything. It applies to asset classes on a mean reversion basis. You know, we talk a lot about we've done a couple articles on just looking at multiple annual years in a row when an asset class is a big asset class is down three years in a row that's actually pretty rare so it happened since the 1970s i think only four times it happened for the long bond in the late 70s as we transitioned from that um uh, high inflationary environment into a, 
uh, interest rate declining environment. It happened for U.S. foreign and emerging stocks in 2000, 2003. They had three years down in a row. And then it happened uh, last year for two asset classes in 20, uh, going into 2016, which was emerging markets and commodities were down three years in a row. And so um, these type of events where you have these, these kind of huge mean reversion opportunities, they actually uh, project future very strong returns going forward because they're usually hated. But there's a lot of correlation between something like a market being down a big amount and valuations. So if you look at most of the cheap countries in the world, the average country in the in the world right now is in a bear market, and there's probably a dozen that are down at least forty percent or more. But those countries, the the very cheap PE ratios correlate very highly with simply how much is that country down? You know, is it down forty, sixty, eighty percent? And you know, a funny example, what we talked begun this podcast talking about was you know, technicals versus fundamentals. Well, the P and the price to earnings ratio is a technical variable and the E is the fundamental one. So it's really a combination of both. And which is which is the variable that moves the most? It's certainly the P. So um, a lot of what you're doing is simply buying stuff that's been destroyed and is, it is down the most. The, the mean reverting, fighting the mean reverting thing is, is always um, such a fun thing to look at too. And I, I, I mean, whenever you crank up the frequency on stuff, um, I think that's an interesting insight because you see people try and get in too early as well as getting out too early. It, it cuts both ways when you when you have that frequency higher. Um, I'd be curious, have you looked at the differences in performance that are generated by rebalancing you know, monthly, quarterly, annually um, in the way that you described earlier? I, I mean, you might not have those offhand, but if you if you did, that would be interesting to hear. So, so it depends on the strategy and purpose. So let's say you have a asset allocation portfolio. Rebalancing really doesn't matter at all as long as you do it at some point. So if you've got a global asset allocation portfolio with stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, you could rebalance that really every one to five years, and it doesn't really matter. Um, so most people kind of focus, I mean, so we always say annual rebalance just because it's usually a good time to reflect and look back. But, but in general, it really doesn't matter as long as you do it at some point. So if you go 50 years without doing it, then the high vol, high returning assets will dominate that portfolio. But, but in general, it really doesn't matter um, that much. So m- most people are probably better off checking their investments every couple of years, and that's about it. Uh, on a strategy like global value, same thing. On a strategy like momentum and trend, it's the total opposite end of the spectrum to where you want to be updating it on a much higher frequency basis because it has a different goal and a different sort of purpose. Um, and so we obviously manage a lot of trend following strategies and really those are, uh, should be updated on, on somewhat of a weekly or monthly basis. Um, and you know, certainly operates on a different time, time horizon than value does. Right. Because I guess price is, or sorry, price is a variable, but when you're talking about trend following slash momentum, you're implicitly saying time is also a variable too, right? Like your look back window is moving through time as well. I mean, mean, um, mean reversion historically has been kind of on that three to five year horizon, whereas momentum and trend is really a year and less. And they, that's historically, it's been the way that it kind of operates. I think there's probably behavioral reasons for that, but that's probably the, the topic of a whole nother podcast. <laughs> so with regards to momentum and trend, is it, I mean, do you get more complicated than moving averages or is that, that pretty much just the whole ball game and calibrating it is, is the real trick? I mean, we do, but it's, it's, you know, again, we often say the same thing with value is to say, do you get much more complicated than price earnings ratio? I mean, we do, but, uh, it's capturing really the same thing. And so, as an example, so valuation. So it doesn't matter which valuation indicator you use. You could not come up with a valuation indicator, at least I don't know of any, when you have a market that's universally expensive, they should all say that market's expensive. And the U.S. is a great example. You cannot come up with a valuation indicator that says U.S. stocks are cheap. And on the flip side, same thing with uh, like Russia. You cannot come up with a valuation indicator that would say Russian stocks are expensive. And the same thing with trend. You know, it doesn't matter if you're using uh, a moving average, a breakout, you know, any of the 50 other trend following sort of indicators. If you have a market like, you know, U.S. stocks right now, almost all of them should say U.S. stocks are an uptrend. You know, it's pretty basic stuff. And going back again to the Charles Dow and, and Ben Graham of 100 years ago, 
that's what you want. You want that kind of parameter stability or robustness. Um, what you don't want is that when you have the extremes that you have a bunch of stuff that's disagreeing and in the middle, of course, that's, that's a different story. But, but when you're at, at, at the extremes, the, the simpler, the better. And in general, they should all agree. So how do you think about volatility? I mean, obviously it matters significantly for waiting over time. Um, you had mentioned earlier that if you went, if you walked away for 50 years with a current, uh, global, uh, portfolio allocation, uh, you would see asset classes like equities grow significantly in terms of weight over time just because they have higher volatility and because they have higher expected returns than you know a, a bond yield. Day to day, is volatility something that should be completely ignored or is it something that, that you think about um, as its own sort of variable relative to whatever momentum or value strategy you've got in mind? I mean, it depends. You know, most investors, you know, all they care about is down volatility. So if the market's going up every day in a volatile fashion, they could care less. Uh, they love that. But if it's going down and particularly in a volatile, uh, their portfolio in a volatile way, uh, that's what they care about. So they really care about losses and, and, and not so much volatility. But if you look at, uh, you know, do we incorporate volatility into our portfolios? into the design, into position sizing, all that stuff, of course. You know, I mean, we, we think about volatility every day, not necessarily as, you know, one type of volatility, but but it's, uh, yeah, it's incorporated into every strategy and fund we run. But the nice thing, if you think about volatility and portfolio construction, is that you can kind of design in uh, an approach to volatility where, you know, and this, again, is, is modern portfolio theory that's been going back for decades, is that, you want a low vol portfolio, that's a pretty easy thing to design in, add a lot of cash, add a lot of lower volatility in, you know, investments, and same thing for a higher volatility portfolio. You want to leverage that sucker up, have at it. You know? And so, we, yeah, we, we think about it every day, and it's very many different uh, uh, iterations. So returning to Cambria, um, the way Cambria works, and I think it would be helpful to sort of um, uh, talk about this a little bit of background for folks that haven't taken a look at your offerings. Cambria essentially gives uh, low cost access to the various strategies your ETFs um, devise without any sort of management fee for um, individuals uh, running portfolios through your um, investment advisor, which is uh, pretty unique. I'm, I'm not aware of any other investment advisor that uses, uh, you know, client that, that doesn't charge an asset management fee on top of uh, what the ETFs, for instance, that they're using um, already charge. And you guys are able to do that because the funds are part of your business as well. Um, what other than the singular goal of sort of saying we don't want any cost at all, uh, which does make a huge impact on returns over time, what led you guys to that sort of approach? Because I, I think most people would just be, uh, most people in this business would be quite hesitant to throw away pretty large revenue streams, um, you know, that, that have been really important over, over time. Well, uh, <laughs> it's the beauty of capitalism. Unfortunately, a lot of those, a lot of those people aren't going to have a choice. Um, so yeah, so what, what you're describing is our recently launched Cambria digital advisor. And, you know, so we have the business exists in such that we have a suite of eight ETFs, low cost ETFs. We have, we still have a private fund and then we launched this digital advisor. And the reason being is that, you know, I had lots of conversations with friends over the past few years and they'd say, Meb, you know, Hey, I got this retirement account or I have this money. How should I invest it? And I'd say, Hey, go buy these two, three, four funds. And six months later I'd say, Hey, you know, how'd it go? Did you invest? And they said, no. I said, why not? And they said, well, I just didn't know how to do it didn't have time, whatever. And so we said, all right, well, we want to set up the ability for people to have individual accounts and invest in kind of the our philosophy. And so we set up what we call the Trinity portfolio. And there's a white paper on our website that talks about it. And there's six different portfolios of various levels of, of uh, aggressiveness. And it gives you a portfolio of about a dozen ETFs, uh, not just ours. So, you know, we use ETFs from other shops, like you mentioned, Vanguard and, and all these other good shops. And it automatically rebalances. It uh, actually doesn't have any trading commissions, which for um, accounts that are probably under $500,000, maybe people don't think about this, but the commissions actually probably have a greater impact than management fees do. 
um, for for those smaller accounts. Many people don't think about that. And uh, yeah, we don't charge a management fee. Uh, on this first iteration, we partner with Betterment, um, which is a traditional technology robo advisor. Uh, so they charge a small 15 basis point fee, but you get some cool benefits to that, such as tax loss harvesting the portfolio. So it's a very kind of optimal portfolio. And the cool thing about this is having implemented it for myself. So I use all of my uh, publicly investable assets through this platform, as well as implementing it for clients. And so I think in the first four months, we've had over 200 clients sign up, is that I don't really fathom how anyone goes back. And, you know, it's kind of like going from, you know, uh, VHS to streaming movies on Netflix or uh, going from a rotary phone to now having a, an iPhone where, um, or, or same thing, a high mutual fund fee world to a lower cost offering is that it's, it's, it just kind of is this automated, beautiful user interface that, um, runs smoothly. I don't know why people would go back to, uh, the high effort, emotional attachment of trying to do it on your own. And so, uh, obviously we were very biased because we, I launched it and this was kind of our goal in doing it, but you're seeing this quote, robo advisor sort of offering, uh, been very popular. Vanguard and Schwab are actually have been the biggest Vanguard has raised over 50 billion, uh, and Schwab is second over 10 billion. And, both of those have offerings in place where they potentially also include a financial advisor. Now they charge more. They charge uh, Vanguard charges thirty basis points for theirs. Schwab's is I think twenty eight for the financial advisor, but it's really a, a quote financial advisor. You know, not, not a really a dedicated um, you know money manager like most are are used to. It's more of a, a and to my understanding, a little more of a call center esque financial advisor, but. Uh, you know, most of these advisors, uh, most of these robos and money managers in general kind of do the same thing, which is a buy and hold allocation where, whereas ours is quite a bit different, uh, you know, from talking to us, you, you realize that we have a lot different thoughts on money management. So ours is um, designed to be roughly about half the portfolio in buy and hold strategies and about rough, half the portfolio in trend following style strategies which, uh, again, we think is a superior way to do it, but, you know, time will tell. Uh, and so most of these guys do literally the same thing, and we've written a lot of posts and books about this, uh, which is fine. It's actually probably better than 90% of the way that people invest today. Uh, but um, the biggest problem with these buy-and-hold portfolios is, of course, drawdowns and losses, and a lot of people really struggle with any loss that's greater than probably 10%. Yeah, I, I think that's an under-discussed issue in the in the advent of robo advisors. That that you know we we've had these things sort of evolve since the last large equity market drawdown. I mean, really, even since 2011, which was not quite a bear market, but was was a reasonably large decline from all-time highs. You know, robo advisors haven't really been tested, especially at large-scale AUMs like like Vanguard's with over 50 billion in a market where people get scared, where the average person on the street goes, oh no, I need to liquidate my 401k. Um, you know, regardless of whether that's a good decision or not, of course, it almost always isn't um, given how given how behavior works. But the do, do you think, speaking not necessarily to your strategy specifically, but towards robo-advisors in general, do you think that the approach is robust enough to, um, keep every client of every robo advisor from hitting the sell button at the same time and you know moving the market essentially and making what's bad worse or do you think that especially that's true as robo advisors gain absolute market share of assets under management but um maybe we're not there yet but eventually this certainly has to become sort of a concern right so there's there's two parts to that question um one is you know would would the herd behavior of the robo-advisor assets. And I would even lump in ETF assets because a lot of the media talks about ETFs moving the markets and being a huge portion of the markets. And and it's a rounding error. I mean, robo-advisors certainly, but but ETFs are something like used, if you look at institutional portfolios, ETFs represent about 1%. And so it, again, it's it's a, for as far as trading and, and ETFs get like 90% of the attention, but uh, they're they're a afterthought as far as global assets. But um, however, how will 
investors respond to the next bear market, particularly in robo-advisor. And I think it's almost a certainty is that it will be awful uh, because most investors are their own worst enemy. And then we've seen time and time and time over um, that it left to their own devices. And this isn't just retail. So, you know, a lot of institutions like to look down on individuals and say, well, they're so irrational. But the, the institutions do the same exact thing. Of course. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think not having the human element is is going to be a major problem. And so we often say that the number one benefit of a financial advisor, and I'm often out there, you know, saying, hey, look, you know, these financial advisors charge a lot. It's very expensive. You should pay as little as possible. However, we believe financial advisors are worth their weight in gold, but I don't think their worth is the asset allocation process. I think it's acting as a behavioral coach and um, keeping people from doing dumber things that they would already do on their own. And so uh, you really see the kink start to happen after about a 10% portfolio loss. And for every 5 or 10% thereafter, it gets exponentially worse. And, and my, my favorite perfect example that I give uh, in some recent speeches is, and it's in a few of the books, is if you look at the AAII, which is American Association of Individual Investors, uh, survey that goes back to the 80s. They ask their investors, their audience, simple question. They say, are you bullish, neutral, or bearish on the market? So we've got over 40 years of data. And um, there's a pretty big range on, on each. And if you look at the time when people were most bullish on stocks, it was in January of 2000. The literal worst month in the entire sample to be bullish on stocks for the long run going forward the month that they were most bearish on stocks, and you can't make this up, was in March of 2009. So the exact opposite of what you want to be doing. And so people, you know, look, we, we've evolved to not, as, as our friend Robert Knott says, you know, humans evolved not to run towards the line on the savanna. And so risk and investing is a very unfamiliar topic because for most point what the things you should be doing when mark us markets down say 50 percent is being much more interested in buying than and than the opposite and so um, i think it'll be very problematic you know we are now in the second longest bull market of all time in the dow i think if we make it through the spring uh, late spring it will be the longest bull market of all time not the biggest certainly you know i think that the 20s were much bigger um, in magnitude, but it it will be the longest bull market of all time. So we'll we'll have a bear market again at some point. I don't know if that's 2017 or 2020, but uh, you know it's 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 a natural part of the markets. Do you, for your strategy specifically now? So I had asked that in a general sense. For your strategy specifically, it's active allocation. It's not necessarily all buy and hold. So it's a little bit different, presumably that. Uh, there would be a little bit of a performance differentiation there versus someone who's just got their entire 401k in an S&P 500 tracker, hypothetically. But so you, here, here's the ahead. here's the here's the quick summary for the the Trinity portfolio white paper is that it takes people through building like a global market portfolio. So it starts with 60/40 U.S. stocks bonds, and then it moves to a global 60/40, and then it adds in real assets, and then. Um, so you get to this kind of, and then it adds in like value tilts and momentum tilts to the portfolio. And that's a perfectly reasonable portfolio. But the biggest problem with the buy and hold portfolio, again, is is the drawdowns. Most people for that portfolio, you couldn't handle a 30 or 50% drawdown in 2008. And so they panic and sell at the bottom. So a trend following approach, which we haven't talked about that much, too much today, but um, we've written a lot about. Um, our oldest white paper, which is I think going to be ten years old this year, is uh, is on the topic. And so, trend following in general is meant to reduce volatility and drawdowns. Um, and and if you had to pick one, I would say that the trend following portfolio is superior. The problem with the trend following portfolio is it's equally as hard uh, to invest in because the the problem isn't as much the drawdowns. The problem is looking different. And so, a trend following portfolio you know, often like, so it would look great in a 2008, but in years since then, it may have underperformed the S&P. And so when your friends are making a lot of money, that's probably the hardest thing for an investor is, is certainly the envy of everyone else making money when you're not, because uh, it's kind of an insurance style uh, approach is that that makes it a lot harder. So it's equally hard to follow. And so the, the genesis of the Trinity is we said, look, 
you know, if I had to pick a desert island strategy, it would be a trend following strategy. However, for most people, um, it's too hard to follow. So our kind of takeaway was that put half in a buy and hold like ballast so that you're, you're going to capture this global market portfolio and then put another half in the trend following style strategy to act as a diversifier, um, as something that's not correlated and hopefully protect you when, when markets, uh, go through these long pair markets as sort of an ideal portfolio, because we said the best portfolio for anyone is, is the portfolio that they can stick to, uh, as well as the portfolio that lets them sleep at night. And so that was kind of the genesis of that concept. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's something that for the vast majority of people is, is something that would be, uh, an easy portfolio to live with. Back to the, the question I was trying to ask here, I guess. So you've got portfolio construction that's presumably, I mean, looks like and sounds like and should be superior to simply buy and hold index. Presumably, though, there's still going to be a period where your clients are going to suffer a significant drawdown. Uh, that's how markets work, right? No one can construct a portfolio that never draws down <laughs> as much as that would be great to have. Um, do you guys have any sort of behavioral cues built into your system or have you thought about ways to, you know, turn this automated, easy to use, press a button portfolio into something where when you're pressing the button at the wrong time, someone gets on the phone with you and says, hold on a second, or is it entirely just, it's all in the code and it's all automatically executed and that's that. Yeah. So the management of the portfolio is all systematic, which is the way we want it. However, you know, we're a little different than the robo advisors. We like to say we're people powered, meaning you can come to the office anytime you can call us, you can talk to me, we'll do webinars, whatever. So we're, we're a traditional sort of shop in that, in that sense is that you can, you can get us on the phone. Um, the beauty of a trend following approach is that by definition, and this is another reason people have such a hard time with buy and hold is they just feel helpless. So they're just watching the market go down every day and they can't do anything. And a trend following approach whether it works or not, but it it will be selling as markets decline, and so it it, it you know it, it's not going to miss the ten or twenty percent losses in any market, but the fifty to ninety percent likely it is, and uh, in any given market. And so, um, you know, the beauty of those portfolios is is that in general, through the long pair markets, is that side of the port portfolio should make living through the other half of the portfolio a little bit easier. But yes, we we stand by to attack talk to anyone anytime they want. And in general, most of our clients have found us through most of our research and writing. So they come a little pre-sold on the concept anyway. You know, we don't get a whole lot of just people chasing our, <laughs> our quantitative boring funds um, because, you know, there's there's a lot more exciting VIX and social media ETFs out there to and triple leveraged oil funds that they, they could trade if they wanted to. So, um uh, I assume you saw earlier this year the the headlines about millennials loving triple leverage long WTI. <laughs> oh, it's an interesting example of millennials, and you see this. It's kind of rinse repeat over and over again. Is that you know most millennials haven't lived in their investing lifetime through a bear market, and so there's surveys. I was talking about this at a recent conference where they said uh, that they did a survey of millennials and what they expect the stock market return. It was something like 12 percentage points per year which as we know is, is not going to happen. And so, um, but, but that's, you know, that's something you simply learn over time. And once you go through it, you, uh, you know, for most people, it takes the pain, real physical pain of losing money to, to kind of understand or care about those things. So, but, but that's, people are colored by their own investing experience the same way entire generations of Japanese and Greek investors will probably never invest in stocks again is because once you go through a very traumatic loss and devastation you know it's it's it colors your experience all right so i think we'll do one more quick section here and then we'll wrap it up and send you on your way thanks for joining us today i really appreciate it um the the last section we do is trading rich trading cheap so um you know i'm gonna throw something out and you're gonna uh sort of tell me whether you think it's it's rich or cheap or you know uh how how people are looking at it these days so um i this one should be i, I think a no-brainer but given our conversation so far, but I'm going to go with it anyways, because we've asked a few of our guests this question, but do you think uh, active management is trading rich or trading cheap? I, I feel like this is going to be really hard for me because um, I, I feel like almost every answer I have is somewhat a caveat. I, I'm going to quote John Bogle here, and he says, uh, you know, the Vanguard founder, 
the king of passive investing. And he says that the conflict of the in, in the, uh, conflict of interest in the industry is not active versus passive. It's high fee versus low fee. And so, and, the, and this is somewhat of a challenging discussion for me is because I manage both active and passive funds. They do the exact same thing. Everything we do is rules based. And so, um, let me give you an example. Passive 100, sorry, 130 years ago meant one thing. It was a market cap S&P like index. Now you could make an index called um, who at Bespoke Eats Hamburgers and we're going to weight that, you know, the, the people at Bespoke by how many hamburgers they eat per day, you know, and the stocks they own. And that's an index. Is it reasonable? No. And you could charge 4% a year for that. And that is a passive index-based portfolio. It makes no sense. It's going to underperform and it's idiotic. Or you can have an active portfolio um, that charges 10 basis points and has a wonderful strategy. So to me, the um, the active-passive distinction is is somewhat of a meaningless one. So that's <laughs> hopefully the rest of your questions are going to be much easier quick take. I, then I'm not going to answer 10 minutes on each one, but um, I, that one's kind of a punt. Okay, well, this one's simple. You don't even have to go into any detail. Um, trading rich or trading cheap? Treasury yields. Ooh. Um, and I realize you're not a you know short term market guy. I get it. It's fine. Just just any whatever you think. What comes to mind? Uh, my 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 first my first is is fairly valued. Would be my my first uh, first response. Okay, fair enough. Trading rich or trading cheap? Surfing. You know, cheap. I would say cheap in general. Most of the, most of the world still doesn't do it. Although I would say my ability is trading rich. I'm terrible. <laughs> well, at least you get to get out in the water sometimes, right? Yeah. My brother moved to uh, Southern California a few years ago, and and we also had Mark Dow on earlier as a as a guest in oh, on cool. the Spoke Cast, and both are are avid surfers. So um, I think I'm sort of uh, my personal perception of surfing is sort of overweight at the moment because because I've been exposed to some some avid surfers recently. Um, so trading rich or trading cheap, having li- spent part of your childhood here, do you think uh, the South is a geographic and you know uh, economic and cultural region is trading rich or trading cheap? Cheap. Why do you say that? My my waistline would be trading rich if I live there, though, is the problem. <laughs> I, love, I love the South. I get very homesick anytime I go back. I don't get homesick when I'm in Los Angeles or Colorado or traveling. But when I go back to the South, I certainly miss the people and the environment and the food and everything else. So it's a, it's a wonderful part of the country. Well, you'll have to stop in for uh, for a beer or something next time you're in in Central North Carolina. I'll be I'll be around at least until my girlfriend lit, finishes law school. Anyways, <laughs> Winston Winston has got uh, even's got some microbrews. I even stayed in a Kempton hotel last time I was there. It has it, it is remarkable to us how much it's sort of moved up. I mean, it almost seems like since we moved here, it's 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 improving significantly in terms of um, the amenities that it offers to people like us who are used to New York City. Uh, not to say that those amenities are better than uh, chop barbecue and uh, cheap real estate, which are also hallmarks down here, but it's it's great. Yeah, don't tell anyone. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for Bespoke Cast this week. Uh, thanks so much to Meb Faber for joining us. That was a really fun conversation. We got we got deep into detail on some, on some stuff that I, I think that should be very informative to everybody. Meb, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. 
Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.